Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. This week on the podcast, our man in D.C., reporter Humberto Sanchez, talks with Representative Stephen Horsford about how Nevada is faring in the federal response to coronavirus, as well as where the state needs help. After that, I talk to reporter Megan Messerly and you, Joey, about coronavirus testing, including where we're at and where we need to go before the state can open back up. At the end of the show, editor John Ralston and managing editor Elizabeth Thompson debate 2019's best film, Parasite. Before we move on, we wanted to give you a quick update on where things stand this week regarding the coronavirus. As of recording this podcast on Thursday, April 23rd, confirmed cases of COVID-19 exceed 4,200, and 189 people have died statewide. Those numbers will likely have increased by the time you hear this. But as the statewide shutdown dragged into its fifth week, Governor Steve Sisolak finally gave new details about what benchmarks the state should hit before things might begin to reopen. Among them, a sustained decrease of cases and hospitalizations through a two-week period. Data collected by the state and county health officials don't show any downward trends yet, and most experts say the shutdown will likely extend beyond the current April 30th end date. The ongoing shutdown has quickly morphed into a partisan issue, with many to the governor's right calling for a defined end to the so far indefinite closures. Those critics include Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman, who drew national attention this week after saying she wanted to open the city up for business and that she had tried to offer the city's population as a control group during a freewheeling, sometimes contradictory interview with Anderson Cooper on CNN. Goodman has frequently clashed with the governor over his shutdown orders, saying in part that the orders were killing the Las Vegas economy. Goodman's authority does not extend to the Las Vegas Strip, however, and she has no authority to reopen any Las Vegas businesses. And now on to reporter Humberto Sanchez's interview with Representative Stephen Horsford. So uh, I just wanted to ask you about uh, why do you think Nevada did so poorly in, in the in the PPP program? I mean, it's really kind of stark. As you know, the administration um, decided to set this program up with uh, only a week uh, worth of effort mm. uh, through the Treasury. And I'm not placing blame, but it's a reality that, um, you know, to start up any type of federal program, uh, this one with $350 billion worth of relief uh, to small businesses within a week's worth of time. And there was not adequate guidance to the small businesses nor to the lenders in Nevada. I'm actually doing a call today with a number of Nevada banks uh, to discuss what we need to be doing differently on a going forward basis with this next round of funding uh, that I do expect will be approved uh, sometime by the end of this week, as well as uh, Susie Lee and I will be doing a meeting uh, with several of the local chambers of commerce, including the minority chambers. Um, As you know, we had just over 4,000 businesses that ended up getting approved in the first round, but that was somewhere around number 43 out of 50 states, which is just unacceptable. So in addition to the federal program not being set up or the guidance not being available to local banks or businesses, we just need to do a a better job of making sure that 
women-owned, minority, veteran-owned, you know, the, the mom-and-pop-sized uh, businesses get their share of the relief. That, that's a big thing that I've heard uh, from a number of my businesses in, in my district is that even once they were applying, and many of them have applied and are waiting, yeah. it took them longer to get their stuff in because they're just not as structured or, or uh, established as some of those quote-unquote larger small businesses with employees you know, under 500. Now, and I do want to get to your, your COBRA bill, but I just want to ask, uh, it is an election year. Do, do you think that uh, people will question your effectiveness on this given that, that uh, Nevada did, did so poorly? Well, to be clear, uh, Umberto, this is one, this is a, first of all, it's a pandemic. And I think that when you take it in the total of the relief that we have uh, passed, this is now the third relief package that Congress has enacted. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've never seen anything like this. The fact that we were able to secure $2.2 trillion worth of relief mm-hmm. to small businesses, to families, to workers, um, is, is every bit of an indication of how committed I am to getting the help to the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to continue to hold the administration accountable. Our job in Congress is to pass the legislation. Right. The executive branch is to help get it out. Right. And clearly, you know, we have to do a better job of, of holding them accountable uh, to make that happen. And, and I spend my morning, noon, and evenings making sure that my office is doing everything we can to help uh, those constituents that need it. Do you think that the administration is hostile to the state? Look, I, I think we'll have plenty of time to assess uh, this administration's uh, effectiveness. Um, what I will say is that nobody expected this yeah. level of uh, both public health impact nor the um, impact to our economy. Nevada, as you know, is one of, if not the worst impacted state in the country because of our tourism-based economy. Right. Uh, many of our small businesses, more than a third of their revenue comes in part from the hospitality sector, directly or indirectly. And so, you know, we're, we're hard hit. That means that we need more relief. And I will say that I, I've because of my role on the Ways and Means Committee, um, I was fortunate enough uh, to join Chairman Neal uh, with a conversation with Secretary of Labor Scalia to, to, to push him to do more for Nevada because we are uh, among the harder uh, hit states in the country. And so between more help for those who are unemployed, uh, help for small businesses, help for those who are independent contractors or uh, in the gig economy, you know, we just need to do more. And I'm expecting additional relief to be passed this week uh, out of this supplemental uh, that's going to come even before the CARES 2 legislation at the beginning of May. And one of the provisions that I wanted to talk about um, is the Worker Health Protection Act, which because Nevada has seen over 300,000 people apply for unemployment, it also means that they are at risk of losing their health insurance. And when you add them and their family members, we're well over 500,000 people, individuals, who are at risk of losing their health insurance in Nevada. Nationwide, we're talking about some 17 million people. So the bill that I have uh, introduced along with Chairman Bobby Scott from Ed and Labor Mm -hmm. and um, Debbie Dingell from Energy and Commerce, I'm, I'm 
the Ways and Means lead on the bill would provide 100% financing oh, wow. uh, for both the employee and employer match. Okay in order to extend COBRA health benefits for 15 months. This is very much needed because we've got people who in the middle of this public health crisis cannot now also be impacted by the loss of their health care insurance, disrupting the provider, uh, which doctor they see, the cost that could be incurred, God forbid, if someone has uh, the coronavirus, you know, those are costs that individuals just simply cannot uh, afford to bear. And so my bill would provide that protection uh, for those 500 Nevada individuals uh, and, and some 17 million people across the country. Um, and we, it does look like this provision will uh, be made part of the CARES 2 package okay. uh, as we continue to work on that effort. Um, in the bill that we're going to be voting on, hopefully later this week, right. um, in addition to in, uh, adding more money to the Paycheck Protection Program and having carve-outs for the smaller businesses that I talked about earlier, as well as getting other types of lending institutions like community development finance uh, institutions who primarily worked with the unbanked or underserved uh, businesses, Uh Um, we also are pushing for a pretty sizable investment in testing. One of the things that is paramount in order to get anywhere close to being able to reopen, we have to have the ability to do rapid testing, Mm -hmm. tracing, and tracking of individuals so that uh, we can ensure that those who are exposed, who may be carriers and have no symptoms, uh, also uh, can be tested, uh, which is not the case now. The president is not being forthcoming. He's not. He's lying, basically, when he says that uh, there's enough testing. There, there simply is not enough testing um, available to the states mm-hmm. or local pu- public health agencies. So our bill uh, will address that uh, provision, uh, we believe, uh, later this week. And CARES too. Uh, do you what? What's the timing on that? Do you think? So what I can tell you is our leadership um, is trying to have a bill ready at the beginning of May. Okay. Um, it, it appears that we're going to be voting on a supplemental right. to the PPP, the hospitals, and I believe a provision dealing with testing this week. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we have been working for the last several weeks on a CARES 2.0 package. When that will actually be brought up for a vote, I can't say, but I know that the initial timeline was early May. Based on the fact that we need to provide additional direct cash payments, we need to provide robust uh, help to our state and local governments. You know, that that appears not to be part of this supplemental that we're going to vote on this week. I have been in touch with the governor, with our local county officials throughout my district, uh, local mayors. I have a call with the North North Las Vegas uh, later today. All of them are asking, you know, for federal help uh, now that their budgets are all being impacted. And the reason that that's important is, again, we cannot open if we if local government and state government can't meet essential services, right. firefighting, public safety, right. health care and other basic services. 
you, you can't open if those if those services aren't in place. And so it, it's wrong for the Republicans. I mean, the president said he wants it, but the Republicans in the Senate won't add it. Right, right. That's wrong, <laughs> and we should not be pitting any sector over another sector. Everyone needs help, and um, we need to continue to provide that relief in, in every regard possible. Um, I'll just say... You know, obviously, I served in the state Senate for eight years. Right. I was the majority leader for four. Mm-hmm. I chaired the finance committee. I know the impact of these budgets on people, on the essential services that agencies provide our constituents. Right. And I am not going to leave our local or state governments to fend for themselves when we need to be working together in a collaborative way. And I hope that my colleagues on the other side will join with us to make that happen. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Congressman. I really appreciate it. Of course. Take care. As the coronavirus lockdowns look set to continue through the month of April and into May, there's been an increasing focus on when things might start getting back to normal. But in order to do so, health experts say the country will need to increase its testing capacity by orders of magnitude. And that's something that's easier said than done. Here to break it down for us is Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly and Indie Matters host himself, Joey Lovato. Guys, thanks for joining me. Hello. Good to be here. Okay, so let's start with the basics first. Uh, Testing is obviously very complicated. Megan, can you lay out for the listener exactly what testing looks like in Nevada and where we might need to go from here? Right. So right now, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has laid out these priority guidelines for who should get tested. So priority one is going to be your, you know, hospitalized folks who have symptoms of COVID-19 and symptomatic healthcare workers. Priority two is folks who are in long-term care facilities, you know, have underlying conditions, are older and are exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19. The third priority is just sort of anyone else who doesn't meet those criteria, but also has symptoms. And then the folks who are no priority are asymptomatic individuals. So what does that mean in real terms? That means that right now, generally in Nevada, if you are symptomatic, you have symptoms of the novel coronavirus, which is fever and cough and shortness of breath, um, you should be able to get a test. Now, that depends a lot on the provider that you go to. I've been talking to a lot of different providers across Nevada Some have told me that they don't have enough uh, kits to collect samples from every symptomatic patient that they would like. They're not able to collect them from the the younger, generally healthier folks with symptoms. So they're prioritizing the older individuals with underlying conditions. Now, other clinics have told me that they're able to test all symptomatic patients and even some asymptomatic family members of positive cases. So it really depends a lot on which provider you're going to. But across the board, the one thing that we do know is that there is not widespread testing for asymptomatic individuals with COVID-19. We know that's a problem because we know there are a lot of asymptomatic individuals or people who have really mild symptoms and may not know they actually have the virus. And those people right now are not able to get tested. You really can generally only get tested with some exceptions if you are showing symptoms of the novel coronavirus. Now, the reason why that sort of matters when we're having this conversation about reopening the economy is experts would really like to have the ability to test widely and to be able to test these asymptomatic close contacts of people who are confirmed to have the novel coronavirus. That 
testing and tracing capacity is really important to be able to, to know where the virus is spreading in the community as things start to open back up so that we don't go back into a situation where we have spikes like um, we were trying to prevent with this set of closures. The, the last thing I'll say is that there's been a lot of talk about so how many tests do we need compared to what we have right now. Just for some perspective, we're running about um, 890 tests a day on average. That's the average over the last seven days. Um, so that's, you know, it's it's a lot and it's enough for what, uh, what we're trying to do right now, just testing symptomatic folks, but it's a far cry from what we would like to be doing. And for some perspective, there was a Harvard University report that came out this week that estimated that the country needs to be running about 5 million COVID-19 tests a day by early June. Extrapolating that out to Nevada, that's about 47,000 tests a day that need to be run. To date, we've only run about 40,000 tests, so nowhere near that. Wow. Okay. So, Joey, I think before we get into this a little further, I want to set a baseline for people for what the tests actually look like. You've been talking to Dr. Mark Pandori over at the State Public Health Lab a lot. Um, and can you break down for us, you know, when you go get tested, right, what are you doing exactly? Um, yeah. So the the test is kind of, you, you, we keep hearing this term testing kits, and I think that that's kind of this broad term to refer to the process that the, the test kind of goes through and that's the two parts are the collection kit and then like the lab testing kit itself um, and so the collection kit is you know kind of what you've been seeing um, like in the news and stuff if, if, you, if you go get a test they're going to take this swab uh, and they're going to stick it way up your nose um, way into the back um, of your, your nasal cavity and then they're going to put that in like a sealed tube and send that off to one of the many testing labs, whether that's Quest or whether that's the state public health lab or whether that's a lab with the Southern Nevada Health District. Um, and then they're going to then process the collection kit it, with a lab testing kit um, and, you know, through like a variety of chemicals. And I, I won't get into the details there of what kind of chemicals you're using and stuff, but they're, they're going to get a result back, whether you're, you know, whether you're positive or negative uh, for COVID-19. Uh, also, what Megan was talking about with the shortage and like not being able to test enough people, a lot of that is due to the lack of collection kits. They have enough testing, they have enough lab test kits in the labs to like run tests. They don't have enough collection kits to collect all of these. Like, if, if you want to test 100 people, you need 100 uh, collection kits. Um, and so the reason they don't have enough is just that the CDC ran out. The federal government isn't sending them out to to states anymore, and so they're having to make their own actually. So the state public health lab is partnering with like the School of Medicine at UNR, the Innovation Center in Reno, and then the Carson City Library of all places to to get these uh, swabs tested. And the swabs are kind of the main part of the collection kit. It's what goes in your nose and is then you know sent to the lab for testing. They can only print. When I talked to the Carson City Library, they said that it takes about 24 hours for them to print about 330 swabs. Um, I think that the, the medical school and the innovation center have a little bit higher capacity, but I'm not sure exactly what their numbers are. But if you think about it that way, that's still nowhere near. I mean, if, even if you quadrupled that number, it's still not enough tests per day to be, you know, reaching where we need to be. I want to go back to something you said about the timing of these tests and that when you get one, it takes a couple of days to get a result back. Now, there are rapid testing machines. And can you explain really quickly, Joey, what is the difference between a rapid test and one of these normal tests? So one of the normal tests, like I said, you have the collection kit, goes in your nose, gets sent to a lab, gets tested, comes back to your doctor who tells you if you have coronavirus or not. Um, the rapid test, you're going to go to a clinic, a doctor, one of your doctors. You know, they only have so many of these machines in the state. Um, and so you're going to go to wherever these machines are, and they're going to use, they have cartridges, those machines have cartridges. Um, the machines are called ID Now machines, they're made by a company uh, called Abbott. 
And so they use these cartridges uh, to test for coronavirus, and then it, they have to throw it away. And so it's kind of like ammunition for, for a gun or something, right? Like one, you, you get one test, and then you have to throw it out. The machine can keep going, but it needs new cartridges. And each machine only has so many cartridges. Um, they can get these tests back in about 15 minutes instead of you know a couple of days, um, which is great uh, for rapid testing, but it's not great for terms of capacity, right? Like you're really not going to be able to test hundreds of thousands of people. Um, the reason that these machines are so much faster than, say, like the labs is just proprietary technology that the Abbott has for the, with, with these machines. Like the technology they're using is really, really sensitive to the particles. Okay, so there's a difference between this then, these rapid tests, and antibody tests, which have also been touted uh, as, as one of the keys to reopening economies across the country and across the world. Now, Megan, can you drill down into the differences between a rapid test and an antibody test? Right. So again, we were talking about these sort of regular sort of what you think of when you think you're getting a COVID-19 test where it takes a couple of days to come back. Those are sort of the just the normal regular tests. Then the rapid tests are a version of that, right? It's just faster. You can get your results in 15 minutes versus days. The antibody tests or serology tests are completely different categories. So the first couple of tests we're talking about are generally like Joey was describing, nose swabs, and those are getting tested to see if the virus is actively, you know, in your body, hiding in your nose um, to be able to tell whether you, you are actively infected by the virus. Now what the antibody tests do is see if you have previously been infected by the virus. So they tell you whether or not you've come across the virus and you have developed antibodies to it. This is a different kind of test. It's actually a blood test. So, you know, if you're used to getting a blood draw sample, um, they're actually testing your blood to see if the antibodies are, are in the blood. Um, these tests now are coming online. There's um, the state uh, public health lab, as, as Joey knows from talking to Dr. Pandori, is bringing this online. Uh, two of the private labs, Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp, have announced that they are now doing antibody testing. The difficulty with antibody tests is that we are not totally sure what they can tell us, right? They tell us that you have antibodies in your blood, but the problem is we just don't know enough right now about the science of COVID-19 to know what that test actually tells us. There's, it's expected that there's some level of immunity that's conferred by having antibodies and having been exposed to the virus, but scientists don't know, you know, at what level of antibodies do you have to have in your blood to have that level of immunity? And then how long does that immunity last? So it's not a guarantee if you go and get this test that says, yes, you have had COVID-19, it's still not a guarantee to say, okay, if I'm exposed again, I'm going to be okay because my body already knows how to fight this. It already has the antibodies. So that's one of the big challenges with it right now. Um, and then the last thing that I'll note is it's uh, right now you still have to go see your doctor to get this test. Um, your doctor may collect a blood sample while you're at the doctor's office, or if it's a clinic, they might do a blood draw there, or they might refer you out um, to, say, a Quest or LabCorp. They have um, testing facilities where they'll go and do a, a blood sample. If you've ever gotten, you know, your blood drawn for just a usual checkup, you'll go to that sort of uh, lab facility and a phlebotomist will take your blood and then they'll send it off to the lab for processing that way. But that's still, again, just subject to your doctor's order saying, yes, you know, you, you, you should have this test. It's my medical opinion that you need it. Okay, so we've got rapid tests, we've got serology tests. Um, where are those those sort of quick testing, those alternatives to the traditional testing method? Where are those going in the state? 
Yeah. So that's also one of the challenges. I mean, like, like Joey was saying, we have these machines, these Abbott rapid ID now machines, which are, are great, but there's such a limited supply of them right now in the state because everyone wants their hands on these, right? I mean, who wouldn't want if you the alternative is a 15 minute test and we're having to wait 24 hours, obviously 15 minutes sounds a lot better than 24 hours. Um, the problem is that there just aren't many of the machines. So the Washoe County Health District received four machines. Uh, they sent one to a federally qualified health center, which is basically just a clinic that serves uh, underserved communities. So they sent one of those to a federally qualified health center um, in Northern Nevada. And then the other three went to hospitals. Uh, I think the important thing to know is the sort of way that Washoe is envisioning using these machines is in the healthcare setting. Right, to do quick diagnosis of patients so that you know patient comes into the hospital, they have symptoms, they get tested you know, very quickly if they have COVID-19 and they can be properly isolated. Um, in Southern Nevada, they're using the machines a little bit differently. They received eight machines um, and all of those are going to federally qualified health centers in Southern Nevada. So a couple are staying at the Southern Nevada Health District, which actually runs its own clinic and the other ones are getting distributed across Las Vegas as well. But the big problem like Joey mentioned is the cartridges. Um, I know Joey said 10 or 15. I talked to the health districts and Washer County Health District said the machines came with eight cartridges each and the Southern Nevada Health District said that theirs came with three cartridges each. Three, that means three people can be tested with three cartridges, which is just not enough, um, you know, to be running now. Obviously, they're working right now on trying to acquire additional cartridges, but as you can imagine, every state in the nation is trying to get their hands on these um, and so Nevada is just sort of one, one of many um, finding get its hands on, on some of these cartridges so that these machines can actually start being put into use because we just don't have enough cartridges to be using them wide scale right now. Wow. So just to finish off here, testing isn't the entire part of the picture when it comes to how states are going to reopen their economies and how they track where COVID-19 is and isn't. And a big part of this is contact tracing, right? Having Paying people to literally find cases and trace all the contacts that they may have had. Uh, can you explain a little bit how do local health departments really do that kind of work, especially when they're already sort of strapped for resources? Yeah, that's been the biggest challenge in all of this is that, you know, public local public health departments have been underfunded for years and Nevada ranks at the bottom of all the 50 states in Washington, D.C. We rank 50th for public health funding. Um, so staff, they just don't really have the staff they need to be doing as much contract tracing as they would like to be doing on a, on a widespread level. Just to give you a sense of that, the Washington County Health District estimates that it would need 140 contact tracers to start reopening the economy and doing this kind of robust testing and surveillance operation that we've been talking about. They only have 160 staff members total, their entire staff. Um, and their staff does a lot more than just contact tracing. So the difficulty right now is trying to identify, you know, is it possible to hire additional people to do this contact tracing? And then the other question is figuring out how you assemble those teams. So usually a contact tracing team will be led by um, an epidemiologist and they'll have a staff working with them who are the ones helping making the phone calls. And people can be trained to do that kind of a work. But you still need to have sort of the epidemiologist, these highly trained professionals overseeing the team. So that's a lot of what sort of health districts are working through right now is 
you know, how do we use our resources so we're able to do more contact tracing and are there additional resources we can secure to hire additional staff to be able to do more robust contact tracing? Because if you have a positive result, but you don't have the staff to call every single close contact and make sure that they are getting tested and staying home and self-isolating because of that exposure, um, that positive test result really doesn't help you that much. It's going to be helpful for the person to know that they're positive, but it's not going to be helpful for you trying to limit um, the, the exposure that person had and then prevent all of those individuals from going out into the public as well. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Megan Messerly covers healthcare for the Nevada Independent and Joey is our intrepid host. You too. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Jacob. Just a heads up that this next segment has some spoilers for the movie Parasite, so if you haven't seen it already and you don't want the ending spoiled, I'd skip this last part. Hi, it's John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent, here with my reliable number two, Elizabeth Thompson, who is reliable in all areas, except for the one we're going to discuss today, which is movies. And we're occasionally going to do segments where Elizabeth tells our podcast audience wrong opinions on movies. Elizabeth. (laughs) So Parasite is our topic. Uh, uh, I'll confess to the listeners that I just watched this movie uh, over the weekend a few days ago. Um, I often do not watch the Academy Award-winning movies until the following uh, year. So, um, but I made a comment on our internal messaging system, which was that as as great as it was in many ways, I did not think it was deserving of all the Academy Awards it walked off with. And uh, John Ralston um, took about a half a second before he told me I was completely wrong. Um, John, I want to ask you a question before I tell you uh, the two or three reasons why it kind of missed the mark for me uh, in a couple of ways. Do you you consider, this is kind of a weird genre, right? South Korean, dark, comedic, you know, satire with like social commentary. But do you consider it a full-on satire? Um, I think it's a very broad satire, but I think it's more than just a satire. I think there's, there's elements of allegory in it. And, 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 and there's, it's, I, I think, I think it's very, very layered and textured work and, and very close to being brilliant. I, I, I was blown away by it. So what you just said is one of the things that fell short for me in this way. I felt that it was overlayered and over dense um, with so many references and elements and uh, sights and sounds that you could be pulled in from different genres. And it was so tightly written um, where, you know, nothing happened in the movie that didn't get followed up on, you know, it's some, seen later that it just, it just that's where it, it kind of missed me because it was just it felt over the top to me in a few places throughout the movie and by the near the end of the movie with that final you know horrific stabbing scene where I could believe the first stabbing that happened you know but by the time we get to the end of that scene with Mr. Kim you know loses his mind stabs Mr. Park I just it lost me because it's it stopped being believable to me at that point as a narrative well first before I respond let me say spoiler alert (laughs) 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 and then then, let, let me just say that 
I, I thought a lot about that last scene that you're talking about. And because I initially thought, you know, this seems a little bit too much over the top to me. Uh, but then I started thinking about the movie and the pacing of the movie and what he was trying to achieve. And the pacing then, I just realized it was so deliberate and so uh, um, uh, paced in a way to build to that kind of what we both described as over the top climax to kind of make the statement of this is what this kind of class warfare inequity between rich and poor could be leading to anywhere that could have been in South Korea. It could have been in any European country. It could have been here that it escalates into violence for a variety of reasons and really nasty violence. Uh, I will say that that's the only part of the movie that I think people uh, should quibble with uh, be because of what you said, but I think it makes logical sense based on what he was, with the commentary he was, he was uh, trying to achieve. And by the way, one thing neither of us have talked about is I thought the acting in the movie was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I thought every character was believable. Uh, I, and, and outside of that one thing that you mentioned, I thought every plot point was very well constructed and made sense in the larger narrative. Okay, so now I'm going to tell you where you're wrong on that point, and it goes back to the beginning uh, of the movie. But I will agree with you that the casting was tremendous, the acting was tremendous. I, I find fault with none of that, and that's one of the that was one of the bright spots for me is that I and I really enjoyed the movie. I don't want the listeners to get the wrong idea. I enjoyed the movie thoroughly. I just I didn't think it deserved all the awards that it got. So here's another thing that was that I disbelieved almost from the beginning, but it started to strike me more and more as the plot played out, which is that, look, you've got four very clever people living in the slums in a downstairs apartment. Um, the young man can speak fluent English well enough to teach a, a rich family student. The young lady is a gifted graphic artist. The father's worked professionally as a driver. Um, and the mother, um, who seems, frankly, kind of useless in many ways, um, does have some talents um, that, that could be translated into jobs. Now, modern-day South Korea is a pretty hopping place economically, very low unemployment, and very high unemployment rates for people who have certain skills. It seemed thoroughly implausible to me that all four of these family members were not working at all in the beginning of the movie, and then all of a sudden, just because of one little lucky turn of events, they got very clever and very ambitious and suddenly figured out, you know, how to scam this one family. If they were such like clever scam artists, like they could have been doing that the whole time, right? Like it just, it didn't make sense to me. It seems too contrived. Uh, we could go on and on about this when our producer, Joey Lovato, will probably kill us because it will probably take up the entire podcast, which, by the way, is probably more interesting than whatever else uh, he's putting on uh, the <laughs> podcast this week, hearing you and me talk. But there are elements that can be accused of contrivances in almost any movie that, 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 that you see. So I don't necessarily uh, buy that. As, but we, don't, we just don't know. We don't know what the specific economic... Uh, situation was in the place that they were living. We don't know what might have happened. And again, I, I, I think that's part of the message is that you can have a lot of people with real talent and smarts and abilities in any country who, because of the circumstances that have befallen them, are not doing as well as less talented or even equally talented people uh, who, who have the benefit 
of money or connections or, or whatever. So I, I think it was all of a piece uh, to, uh, uh, to me. And so um, uh, I, I'm glad that you actually liked the movie. I, I, I thought it was uh, very clearly the best movie that I had seen. And I, I don't see uh, every movie. Uh, uh, and I, when I say very clearly, I wouldn't have been upset if a couple others had won, but I really thought Parasite as a work is one that's going to endure more than anything, more than any other movie that, that I saw. John, what was your, let's end on this note. If it hadn't been Parasite, what would your, what would your pick have been? I, I really, really <clears throat> liked 1917. I thought it was a remarkable achievement in, in many ways, uh, visually and just having it essentially be one shot. And as, as an anti-war movie, it, 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 it was well done. The message itself wasn't anything really new. So I didn't think it quite rose to being uh, best picture. I highly recommend Jojo Rabbit. I wasn't sure about that movie in the beginning and I fell in love with it a little bit more all the way through. And by the end, I was in tears and I loved it. So highly recommend. All right, Elizabeth, we'll be okay, back John. in the future to hear your wrong opinions again. Always fun to disagree with you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Stephen Horsford, Humberto Sanchez, Megan Messerly, Elizabeth Thompson, and John Ralston for being on the podcast this week. If you like the podcast, you can find more of it on all the podcast platforms from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or on our website, which has a new podcast player if you click on Indie Matters Podcast on the sidebar. If you would like to support our journey into the fun, exciting, and innovative world of nonprofit local journalism, you can do so by clicking the Support Our Work button on the top of our site. If you want minute-to-minute updates on the situation in the state, you can also check out our coronavirus live blog on our site, thenevadaindependent.com. And of course, if you have comments, criticism, or that ever-sought-after praise, you can email us at jacob at theenvyindy.com or joey at theenvyindy.com. People with Bodies wrote our original theme song, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. They've got a new album coming out on May 7th. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.